everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Olivia Mentor. And today we are continuing our How a Book Gets Made series. And we are talking to Amanda Bergeron, who is uh, an editor at Berkeley at Penguin Random House, and Carly Fortune, the author of Every Summer After. This interview was so fun. I don't know if you feel the same way, Becca. I felt like I could have talked to them for seven hours. Absolutely. But before we talk to them, should we do some highs and lows? Yes. Let's start with a high. Yes. I want to hear all about your France trip. Oh my gosh. So my high is my France trip. I was supposed to be in France for nine days and I'll tell you my low, which I think many of you probably know from Instagram. And I ended up being there a bit longer. But France was amazing. It was not my first international trip since COVID, but it was like my first longer international trip. It was wonderful. The weather was perfect while we were there. I've been to Paris many times, so I didn't feel the pressure to like do touristy things. I hadn't been to Paris in in like 10 years. And Paris feels so much bigger than like even New York or London. And like there's so many restaurants, like there was so much stuff. Like I we were there for five nights and I did not even feel like we scratched the surface. Really? Yeah. And you've been there before. Yeah, I've been there like I think this is my fourth time. What was your favorite day of the trip? Ooh, I have like two. So one thing that we did, which was unexpectedly a favorite, was we took this cheese class. My friend Maxie, her boss, had said that they'd done it and it was like their favorite thing. So we took this cheese class. It was very educational, but it was also like very heavy pours of wine, very informal, and it was delicious. But it was also, I don't know, it was just a really cool experience. It was in this like beautiful little cheese shop slash restaurant. And then afterwards, we went to Soho House. And then we went to this restaurant for dinner that we just we literally walked into versus like every other night we had like planned reservations, etc. And it ended up being like one of our favorite dinners. It was just like a like a bistro. It was amazing. Oh, that's just the best when you find those like unexpected gems. Yeah, it was such a good vacation day. And then my other favorite was... I mean, we went to see the Harry Styles concert, which was very fun, lived up to the lived up to the hype. Okay. Also, I have to tell you, since you posted the Harry Styles is secretly bald thing, it is haunted my daily thoughts. I, I don't know if it's true. I'm not it. saying I'm not saying that it is. There's a rumor right now that Harry Styles is secretly bald. There was a video of like it looks like his wig is blowing off. I have no idea if it's true or not, but it just really tickled me. I thought it was really funny. He is such a great showman. It is very clear why he is famous. Yeah, he's incredible. Everything about him. So that was great. And then the day that I ended up getting COVID, before that happened, we were in Dijon for the second half of the trip. Dijon is like a much smaller city. And we used it as a launch pad to explore some of the wine region in Burgundy. And we went to Montrachet, which is this like very small town, very, very small. And we took a taxi there and the drive out was beautiful. It looks like driving through a postcard. And we got there. We had lunch out on this terrace at this incredible hotel. We walked around the village a little bit. And it was this moment where I understood why Diane Lane bought that house in Under the Tuscan Sun. (laughs) I was like, I get it. I get this. I want to move to this stone house in this little village. Well, I can send you a few French reality Instagram pages. And you could make that happen if you'd like. Oh, my God. So I ran into my friends at the airport who actually did that and bought a house in France and are living in like a little village. I can't remember the name of the village. Amazing. 
Wow. Goals. Goals. Anyway, the whole trip was a high. It was it was great. It looked absolutely amazing. I enjoyed every second of following along, truly. Thank you. Tell me your high, though. (laughs) My high is also travel. It feels so long ago now, but Jake and I went to visit my brother in Alaska over like a long weekend, four or five days that we were there. First time? Yes. First time going there. My brother is in the Coast Guard, so that's why he's there. I get that question a lot. Um, And it was my first time seeing him like live there and just seeing where he hangs out and seeing Alaska for the first time. Um, And it was so wildly different than what I expected. I I don't, yeah, it was just very fun and interesting and so beautiful. So beautiful. I'm on an Alaska kick after reading The Unsinkable Greta James. Seeing your stories, like it just, nature looked so amazing. I want to go to Alaska now. Yeah, we went on this hike and it was like a 20 minute drive from my brother's house. My brother lives in like downtown Anchorage, which (laughs) is a city, but that's maybe a generous description. But um, it was like a 20 minute drive from his house and it was as gorgeous of a hike of nature as I have seen anywhere that I've ever been. We saw mountain goats, which was kind of cool. No bears. Thankful for that. (laughs) And Anchorage itself as a city is just I met quite a few people there, locals who described it as being like 20 years in the past. And it is kind of how it feels. It's a little bit, it's a little bit disorienting and strange, but. So it's 2002 in Anchorage? It kind of is. It's, there's like three restaurants. They're always completely packed. One of which is called Humpy's. Sure, sure. I spent a lot of time at Humpy's. And it, it seems like there's demand for more. Like I talked to this one guy about how there's no reason that Alaska can't be what Iceland is. Like it has all of the same things, if not much more. And yet it is not marketed that way at all <laughs> to people. And it's not accessible. Like I don't, there's like one semi nice hotel. That's it. Maybe this is your calling to open a hotel in Alaska. <laughs> yeah, maybe I could do it. My brother's roommate really wants to start like a glamping business in Alaska. I was like, that's genius. It's genius. Anyway, Alaska was great. Highly recommend. That was my high. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to lows. Let's let's hear about your low. Your low was a low low. I got COVID in France. The last day of our trip, I I guess it could have been worse. I could have gotten it the first day of our trip, which would have really sucked. Honestly, I at first it came on very fast. And at first I thought I was just hungover. One of my main symptoms the first day was I was so thirsty and I thought that I was hungover. I I just felt like off and very Mm -hmm. thirsty. And then by like four o'clock in the afternoon, it was clear that I was sick. Took a test, came back positive and was like, oh, crap. So I ended up having to extend my stay. I stayed five extra nights to quarantine And I was just by myself with COVID in the 25th largest city in France. And I mean, it was lonely. At the beginning, it was scary. It wasn't scary. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll be fine. It seems like I'm like over the worst of it. I was very sick. I was not even bored because I was so sick. It was not great. I mean, obviously came at great personal expense. I had to pay to change my flights. I had to pay for food. I had to pay for a hotel room for those nights. Sucked to be looking out a window and being like, oh, I'm in a foreign city, but I can't go outside. The worst part was like the food. It was a minefield to figure out food. 
I saw you posted that. What was it? Like a lamb terrine? Or Guinea something? fowl I, terrine. So, Guinea- <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not funny. It is funny. It is funny. It seems fake that that was even an option. So the hotel's room service, first of all, did not serve food at all on Sunday and Monday. Oh, because people don't eat then. No, people don't eat then. <laughs> and then the rest of the week had possibly like the least sick person friendly room service menu. The only soup was gazpacho, which, you know, what every sick person wants is a cold oh tomato soup. There were like four appetizers and four entrees, just like not sick person friendly. The delivery situation in Dijon was only fast food. And also, like, the mechanics of getting a delivery person to deliver something into the hotel and having it brought to my room was, like, the biggest headache. I feel stupid complaining. There's there's obviously much worse situations to be in, but it was really stressful. No, it it is psychological. Also, like, you realize, I think, when you're sick, at least after I had COVID, when I lost my taste, I realized how much food brings comfort and routine and familiarity when you feel totally outside of your normal self. And when I couldn't taste, it really messed with me. And so I feel like that's kind of the same <laughs> when your only option is, is guinea fowl terrine. It's basically the same as not being able to taste. Yeah. I mean, there was that, but it was also just like the logistics of being sick and then being like, oh, I need to deal with this. I need to figure this out and not having it be something that was easy really sucked. Yeah. Ugh. Why don't they have Instacart in Dijon? I mean, that was the other thing. People were like, just get groceries. And I was like, I don't think you understand how small the mini fridge is. It fits four beverages. And there was no microwave or hot plate or anything. So yeah. When you're that sick, it sounds like you had what Jake and I had. I didn't want to move, let alone go to a grocery store and navigate a foreign language. People are like, what are you what are you doing while you're sick? And I was like staring at the wall. Yeah, I I couldn't even watch TV when I had it. I was like, I can't even focus on the plot. I'm just going to sit here and scroll through my phone until I black out. It it would basically be like eight hours would go by so fast. I would wake up at 10. All of a sudden it would be six and it would be like, wow, I haven't done anything. I'm glad you're feeling better. Do you think you're fully recovered? So I, I tested negative before I came back. So I have cleared the COVID out of my system. I think you can hear in my voice that I'm still... My voice hasn't come all the way back. I'm a little stuffed up. I might have bronchitis, which I need to go to a doctor and figure out, but we'll see. Okay. Well, fingers crossed, no bronchitis, no COVID. I will say, you know, I, th- I feel like I got so many DMs from people while I was there about what a nightmare this was of theirs. Yeah, it wasn't ideal in any way, shape, or form. Wouldn't ask for it by name, but it was fine. Yeah. Like, you, I lived you through survived. it. You survived the, the guinea fowl. I didn't eat the guinea fowl. I still feel like you survived it, though. Just its mere presence on the menu is an obstacle, I feel. I persevered over it. (laughs) Tell me yours. Oh, man. So I don't my I feel silly complaining about this, but I just feel like I have been all over the place lately, emotionally, focus wise, work wise. I feel like a lot of things have been changing. There's been sort of like a lot of ups and downs just with work projects and taking on new clients and dropping some clients that I don't want anymore. And I just, I don't know. I feel like I can't sort of get my head above water and just get to a place where I feel good. (laughs) And there's been some like major high moments, but then it's just like always followed by a major low. I I just, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I, I know more 
that's going on behind the scenes. Like, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Not to be super mysterious. It's all actually very good things. (laughs) It's just a lot of emotions all the time. But but yeah, I'm happy to be back recording and talking. It's already making me feel better. Well, should we take a quick ad break before we get into this interview? Yes. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Let's take a second to think about the things in our lives that we really, really want to last. Cars, jewelry, expensive handbags, that fancy couch that I bought that took 12 months to get delivered. No matter what you consider valuable, odds are that you're very invested in making it stay in perfect condition for as long as humanly possible. So why is it that we don't feel the same way about our brains? For me, therapy has been the best way to regularly take care of my brain and my mental health. After every session with my therapist, I not only feel like I've had this weight lifted off my shoulders, but I also feel so much better equipped to handle whatever it is I have in my life in the week ahead. Whether those are professional struggles or personal issues, either way, meeting with my therapist every week is the thing that makes the difference in whether or not I'm able to actually get through those struggles. I also love that therapy gets better and better as the weeks and years go on. I am constantly learning new things about myself, even after almost two years of working regularly with a therapist. A lot of people have preconceived notions about what therapy is or isn't, but the truth is that therapy can be whatever it is that works best for you, especially when you use BetterHelp. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. If the idea of having dedicated time to focus on yourself regularly sounds good to you, try booking a session with a therapist on BetterHelp today. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash badonpaper. That's betterhelp.com slash badonpaper. Amanda Bergeron is an executive editor at Berkeley, an imprint of Penguin Random House, where she acquires and edits a wide range of contemporary and historical book club fiction with women's stories at their core. She works with authors such as Emily Henry, Dolan Perkins Valdez, Carly Fortune, Ashley Poston, Anissa Gray, and many more. She started her career at HarperCollins, where she published best-selling fiction such as The Alice Network and The Hating Game. She's originally from Maine and lives in the Bronx with her husband and children. And we also have with us Carly Fortune, who is the author of Every Summer After, the USA Today and New York Times bestselling novel. Carly is an award-winning journalist who is most recently the executive editor of Refinery29 Canada. Carly was born in Toronto, spent her young life in the suburbs of Sydney, Australia, and in Barry's Bay, a tiny lakeside town in rural Ontario. She now lives near her hometown, Toronto, with her husband and two sons. And Every Summer After is Carly's first novel, and she is currently writing her second. Welcome to you both. Yes, Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. We're very excited. I think the alternate title to this episode could be Olivia and Becca are both writing books and need some validation that it's all going to be okay. <laughs> we, our roles are clear then. <laughs> well, we're just excited to learn from your experience. Maybe before we get started, Carly, can you give us the pitch for Every Summer After? 
Sure. So my quick synopsis of the book is that it is a sweeping love story about Percy and Sam who meet when Percy's family buys the cottage next door to Sam's house on a lake in Barry's Bay. And they're young at the time, they're 13 years old. But as adults, as 30 year olds, they haven't spoken in more than 10 years. And the book goes kind of back and forth in time. So it's told in alternating now and then timelines over the course of six summers in the past, where you see them meet and become best friends and eventually fall in love. And one weekend in the present, it's a very tumultuous weekend where they reunite. And the whole time you're trying to figure out what it is that caused the two of them to split apart and whether they can kind of get over their past mistakes to end up together. And if anyone That's- listening has not read it, the book is fantastic. And like, I'm here to say book of the summer. Yeah, I was about to say Becca is the, the number one fan of this book. It's so much so that I am like saving it for like the perfect summer day. There's something really special about it. <laughs> the anticipation. That's very scary. Like, oh, I'm uh, yeah, this book is not going to be as good as everybody says it is going to be. <laughs> I, th- I think it will. I think it will. I trust the people that love it so much like Becca. But can you tell us, Carly, a little bit about the process of writing this book? Like, when were you writing it? How did you find your agent? What was all of that like for you? Yeah, so I started writing the book in July of 2020. It was very much a snap decision to write the book. I always wanted to write a book, but it was something that I thought I would never do. And I um, was spending the summer up near Barry's Bay where I I grew up and feeling very nostalgic and also very stressed out by my job. Um, And I got off a particularly heinous phone call and I was like, that's it, I'm writing my book. I need to do something for myself creatively. And I didn't know what that book was. I hadn't been thinking about it for many years, but I kind of thought about where I was. I was thinking about, I had read my teenage journals. I was thinking about like my own kind of um, high school years and very quickly had this vision for the book. And I started writing a couple days later. I set out to finish a manuscript by the end of the year. So I came up with an eight, as eight, 80,000 words as my goal for the manuscript. And then I divided that by how many days were left in the year. And so I was like, I need to write 388 words a day in order to have a completed manuscript by the end of 2020. And I thought, I can do that. I can write 388 words a day. And so that's what I did. I would wake up really early in the morning before my kid got up, before work started and kind of plugged away at it. And so I finished, I started kind of mid-July, finished in November, sent it to a few friends for feedback my husband also demanded to read it. <laughs> so I did not, I did not want to show him the book, but he convinced me to let him see it, which was actually very helpful. And then I took a week off from my job to kind of print it out, read it over. And I sent it to one agent because I didn't know anything about publishing and I, or the querying process. Uh, but my goal was to like finish the book and have it like just be good enough that I could possibly send to an agent. So I sent it to one agent and then kind of very quickly learned that that is not how you do things. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of wild. Like I, I sent it to this agent. She was a friend's agent. Most of the people I know who have written books are journalists. So they have written on fiction books. And I was kind of familiar with how that process works. So you don't sell like on a full manuscript. (laughs) So I had spoken to this agent kind of in the midst of writing and learned like, oh, you, I have to finish this book before (laughs) you will read it. But she very generously, she was so encouraging. She was 
she was like, I will read this book. So I sent it to her when I was done. Then I posted on Instagram that I had made this goal for myself because I was very quiet about writing. I didn't tell a lot of people. I was kind of embarrassed. I posted this on Instagram that I had set this goal, completed my goal, and it was presented to an agent. And then somebody reached out to me. My first job out of school was the editor-in-chief of the University of Victoria student paper. I didn't, in British Columbia, I didn't go to school in British Columbia. So I moved out there and edited this student paper. And my the woman who was my arts editor had become a literary agent. And she was like, can I read your manuscript? And I said, I don't know. I sent it to one other agent. I'm not sure if I can send it to you. And she was like, no, it's okay. Kind of explained to me just to tell the first agent I had sent it to someone else. And then the first agent got back to me within 24 hours and was like, I love the book. I just read it. I want to offer you representation. And at that point, one of my best friends was like, Carly, I think you need to talk to some people about how this actually is supposed to work. You kind of need to take yourself seriously. And at that point, I started talking to authors about how querying works. And you will have uh, ended up uh, querying Taylor, who will have been on your episode, one of your episodes previously and uh, getting an agent that way. So it was a really fast process. And I kind of (laughs) quickly learned that I didn't know anything and then got myself up to speed. And how much did you work with Taylor on your book before submission? So Taylor gave me a set of notes in January. So we signed in January and then we did kind of one edit over like a couple weeks, I would say. And it was mostly character work. And there is some like messiness, like the book was like more drama written that we pulled back on. And also I had this idea for an epilogue in the back of my head, but I did not have an epilogue on my original manuscript. And there was some other stuff that wasn't at the end that came in because I don't like endings. I'm like, okay, we've like, we've got them together. Let's get out. And uh, uh, Taylor was like, we need a little bit more. So yeah, that was just kind of one edit. And then she sent me back a couple of small notes that I got back to her like the next day. So it was a pretty quick, like within a few weeks, we had that done. So, so time-wise, when did you go on submission with your book? So then after I, that was in late January that I sent it back to Taylor at that stage, the finished manuscript. And then we went on submission in late February. Okay. That's fast. So from the the day that you conceived of the book to going on submission, that was... Less than a year. Uh, Wow. Seven months, not even seven months. Oh my goodness. What a whirlwind. Oh my gosh. Are you just like, that's crazy, (laughs) but amazing. You've blown Olivia's mind. (laughs) I know you've blown my mind. (laughs) Nothing about this is typical. I think we should, we, like, I'd like to, like, caveat this conversation with, like, this is not a typical, I think, path to publication. And it was really, really fast. And, like, I still can't really believe that I have a book. It's been that quick. <laughs> wow. But speaks to the quality of the book and how everyone loves it so much, clearly. Amanda, so how many submissions would you say you get per month versus how many titles do you actually acquire? On my list, I publish about 10 books a year. So that kind of gives you a sense. And some of my authors, a lot of my authors, it's multiple book deals. So I'm taking on very few new authors each year to kind of keep that list tight so I can focus on each and every one of the books. In terms of how many submissions I get a month, it's probably, depending on the time of year, around a couple dozen coming in from kind of 
primarily agented submissions. So uh, what drew you to Carly's book in particular? So reading Carly's book is, and for anyone who's read it yet, it, it's kind of this viscerally emotional experience. You can smell the sunscreen. You can see the water shimmering on the lake. I don't know how it was for all of you, but winter 2021 was endless. It was probably the longest winter of all of the winters of all time. And I was very pregnant, um, or at least I guess I was maybe six months pregnant at the time. And I was so stressed. I had so much to do before my maternity leave. I was not thinking that I was going to be taking on really any new projects before I went on leave because I had so much on my plate already. And Taylor sent me this submission and I love Taylor's taste. We, I published The Hating Game with Taylor by Sally Thorne and we share Emily Henry um, and her books. And so I really, I know when Taylor sends me something, I'm probably really going to love it. And so I made sure to read it right away. Um, and I remember I was sitting on my couch and I was so sucked into the story that I didn't even realize I was crying until my husband who was working in the room too was like, Amanda, do you need a tissue? And I realized like I had tears in my face and I'm like <laughs> reading and gulping back sobs. And I mean, I always kind of say if something can make me cry, then there's a pretty good chance that I need to work on it if an author is able to kind of grab my heart like that. And so at that point, it was kind of that fevered call to Taylor of, oh my God, this is amazing. What do I need to do? What's going on? Like, I need, I need to publish this author. We need to share this author together. Well, how does the acquisition process work from your end? So you read a manuscript, you love it, you want to acquire it. Now what? So um, we have an editor-in-chief and usually most imprints have an editorial director or editor-in-chief. And so I go straight to her and I tell her, I've read this book. I absolutely love it. This is where I see it sitting on our list. This is how I'd like to position it. Um, and she may say, okay, great. Can you have someone in publicity read or can you get another editorial colleague or she'll jump in right away. And so that's usually what happens. And once the team has had a chance to take a look, we talk about it together of where it would sit on our list and do we all share this vision for it? And, you know, how would we publish this author? And so that's kind of all going on at the same time as I'm trying to line up a call. And I think in this case, there were many interested parties. So it was a lot of us lining up calls to talk with Carly to kind of see, you want to make sure too that you that the author was open to editorial ideas and you feel like they could be, you know, a good publishing partner. And then also to sell yourself and your imprint and your vision to the author as well. And does it ever happen that you you love a book and you want to acquire it and then the editorial director or like the publishing house says like, no? Sure. I mean, you definitely publishing a book is hard and it takes a lot of people to, to get behind the book. And so you do want to make sure you have buy-in from, from people on your team. There may be some disagreement on the team, or it may be that, you know, enough editorial changes would happen that you're really having to sell them, not just on the book that's already there, but on the editorial vision that you have for it and kind of pitch them on it. But yes, no, there's absolutely times where you take a project and people read and say, we actually have a story very similar on our list already, or you don't have enough people who are so excited, or they might really like it, but not at the level that you can see an auction going to. So yeah, there are always conversations. I think when an editor feels really passionately about a project and has a very distinct vision, usually there's a path forward at least to be part of the offering that's taking place. So how does the money side of things work in terms of how does a publishing house decide how much they're able to pay? I'm assuming all the factors you just talked about, the vision and how many other people are interested, all of that plays into it. But what is 
what are you able to share about that? Yeah. So it's never in a vacuum. It's always kind of all of those pieces in play. What's the market right now for a thriller, for a romance, for historical novel? Um, Where would this be sitting on the shelf? Um, What format is it going to be in? If you're looking at other titles out in the market or on your list already, like how many copies are these selling in the most ideal of situations? And what were the circumstances for that book? Is it likely for it to be replicated or is it only maybe a portion of that you think you'd get? So you're kind of looking at all of those numbers and kind of just looking at the landscape of the feel and, and figuring out kind of all of those positionings as you're coming to that. And then when you know that it's going to be many people in an auction, you're also kind of weighing with that competitive element as well. Do you have a budget for the year? Like, let's say in like a fictional example, obviously not Carly, like you spend a million dollars on a book. I don't know if that's realistic. Like, does that mean that then you have to like scrimp and save on other books for the rest of the year? Or is it like every book is evaluated in and of itself? I don't know if this is a question I can really answer because it's so high above an editor where there's kind of a finance department. But no, it's never like, Amanda, you've spent X this year. You only have this much left to work with. Like that's, that's never a conversation. Carly, how did you, I mean, obviously you had lots of options. So how did you decide that Amanda was the person for this and that was the right home for your book? Yeah, I spoke to a bunch of editors, I think six altogether, although oh my goodness, a couple were definitely with Penguin. I spoke with, so Amanda brought the Canadian Penguin editor on board. So uh, there was like two editors representing like Penguin Random House in the US, Penguin in in Canada. And I think there was another publisher did that as well. And so I had spoken to everyone ahead of time. I had one preempt offer that we decided to turn down before I had spoken to anyone. And then, then I had all these calls that my agent set up. And I liked everybody that I spoke to. So there was not a the situation where it was like, oh no, not that person. That person was off. And my agent had really helped me kind of prepare in, in terms of like, wh- like what are you trying to take out of these phone calls? And you're trying to get a sense of, you know, they're an editor's kind of strategy for bringing the book to market. Like Amanda said, how they see it kind of sitting on a shelf, what they're kind of strategic thinking is, and then also like their editorial notes. And you're also trying to get a vibe read, like, would we work well together? And also how they kind of see you in the long term. Because one of the things that I was really interested in, like, I loved writing this book and I felt like it's what I should be doing with my life. And I wanted to be in a position where I found an agent who I felt like had a career uh, focused mindset. And I wanted to find that in an editing partner as well. It wasn't just going to be about this one book for me. And so when I spoke with Amanda, I, I kept all these notes for every phone call. I went back and read the notes this morning. And I like, I said, love her strategic mind, such great editorial comments. But I remember Amanda's probably one of the smartest people I know. And so everything that she said about the book, her editorial feedback, her like strategic thinking was brilliant, but she was also so excited about it. Like (laughs) real excited. And I had known that because my agent had told me, she was like, Amanda is very into this book. And there was, I think, one other editor I spoke to who I had a similar sense of the, oh, this person is into it. And everybody was, but like really into it. And then when I spoke with Deborah Sandela Cruz, who is my editor in Canada, 
Deborah was also very passionate and I could tell it wasn't just them, but it seemed like the entire structure around them was also, their teams were also very excited about the book. In the end, after the auction, to me, it felt like a very long drawn out process. It went over, it was, it was four days. It was like a four day auction, but it was also over, like there were, there were weekend days in there too. Endless. It was endless. It was, it was terrible. Like it became not exciting and just kind of gut-wrenching. In the end, it was very close between two publishers and, but Amanda's was the top offer. But I think if it had, like, if hers would have been like the second, I still would have picked Amanda. Like she just, I just loved her so much. (laughs) Amanda, can you explain to us how the auction process works? Sure. So Once an agent kind of starts to get, and I'm sure Taylor will have talked about this, but once an agent starts to get a certain amount of interest, they'll set a closing date. And so they're really figuring out how many participants there might be. Um, And then they'll set out what those rules are going to be. So there are different types of auctions. There are best bids auctions where immediately you come in, it's just your best bid. That's the end. That's it. Kind of throwing it out there. A lot of times it's something like rounds or or a version of that where you're coming in with your initial offer and the agent kind of assesses where they are with things and then comes back to you to let you know where you are in the lineup and kind of any other sort of rules. Sometimes to avoid kind of having an endless auction. I think in this case, it was something like a couple of rounds and then they reserve, sometimes agents reserve the rights to go to best bids at any point. And so I think that's what Taylor did here. There were a few rounds and not too many people were dropping out. The auction was still staying kind of big. And she said, okay, like we, we've got to make this happen. This is going on and on. Let's go to best bids. And then it's sort of that strategy of, okay, where are we going to go? But what do we think our competitor is going to be coming in at? And, and how can we make sure we're just edging it out? And what are we saying about this offer that you know, might make it more compelling. So in this case, we made sure that we had our Canadian colleagues in on the offer as well, because we knew that that was going to be really important to Carly and Taylor. So as an editor, part of, or as a publishing house, part of the strategy is finding out too, what's really important to this author and listening to them and hearing about that, because there's a money component and then there are other components that you're selling as well, or that you're offering on as well. So it's kind of thinking about that as a full picture, not just kind of what the money is. Very exciting. My heart is kind of racing, just imagine. (laughs) So correct me if I'm wrong, this feels kind of like a fairy tale situation in terms of there were many interested parties, there was like a a long drawn out auction. Amanda, can you help set expectations for people? Like, what would you say, like percentage wise, how many books go to auction versus how many is like, yeah, one person wants it. And like, it's a very simple process. And like, or nobody won. I don't know. That's a really great question. And I'm actually not sure. I mean, I told you a little bit about, you know, the couple dozen of submissions each month kind of versus the 10 books a year that I'm publishing. So maybe I'm acquiring five new things a year. So there's kind of that. In terms of what goes to auction, I'm just trying to think of how many I've bought at auction versus I think maybe Taylor might have a better sense. Although Taylor is a very Cinderella story. I feel like a lot of she's impeccable taste and a lot of people go for a lot of her projects. So she might not get realistic expectations either. Um, (laughs) But I would say, I mean, something doesn't have to be sold in an auction to then go on to do extraordinarily well. There's so many books that either I 
was one of the only bidders on or the only person to author that have gone on to be New York Times bestsellers or there, you know, or books that very little advance was paid up front, but an editor has a vision for it. And because they and the author and the agent and the publishing house have a vision, like they're still able to get the buy-in. It's, it, you know, it's not, I don't want to say that just because something goes to auction, it's going to then therefore do very well, or just because something doesn't, it won't. It's, um, it kind of runs the gamut. And sometimes all you need is just that one offer and that one kind of collaboration to be able to, to have something that's going to have a lasting mark. Another word that I, I think I heard Carly say earlier was preempt. What for, for listeners, what is that? Also so for us. <laughs> also for me. I'll be honest. I just said that because I was like, I don't want them to think I'm dumb. <laughs> for listeners, but also me. <laughs> what is a preempt? Absolutely. So a preempt is when you're just trying to take something off the table that you're going to try to take it and buy it before anyone else offers um, or to kind of stave off an auction or to kind of say, nope, like we're, what can I say to you that's going to be compelling enough to take it off the table so that it can just be mine. And so that's, that's what we're talking about with a preempt. Okay. Very interesting. So kind of the most important question, Carly, what did you do to celebrate when you finally decided on Amanda? You were like, I sold my book. I was not in a good place. No. <laughs> the auction ended. I was also pregnant, very pregnant. And uh, my husband had gone into self-isolation over the weekend. So this was March of 2021. We were like very locked down in Ontario. My son, uh, I had a kindergarten age son who was home from school and I was working in the day. We were moving the next week. So I was like, all, like heavily pregnant, packing, working, parenting all by myself. And my, while my husband was like in his room. So I'm like bringing meals to Marco in his room. And then when, and like, as Amanda said, it went over the course of many days and a weekend. So it, it is like, it's very exciting, but after a while, it's not like exciting. It's just like, oh my gosh, I'm so anxious. Like what is going to happen when I know I sound so ungrateful right now, but when Amanda and I got on the phone after I had, had closed to have our phone call, my internet went out. So my son, Amanda, do you remember this? My son was in the background screaming. <laughs> I was just like, I can't handle any of it. And I finally, when I got Max to bed that night, I think I ordered Thai food and put on Bridgerton. And I just like cried because I was so emotionally drained and you couldn't see people like I couldn't hug Marco. I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm so overwhelmed. So there wasn't like a big celebration at that moment. And then of course, like the pandemic dragged on and we moved and I had a baby. And so it wasn't, it hasn't felt like until this year, honestly. And with like the launch of the book that it's, we've been like in this place where we can both like emotionally and physically with other people celebrate. Well, I'm glad you're celebrating now because you definitely deserve to. I'm, did you feel a lot of pressure because there was so much interest and, and buzz and, and everything, the auction? Like, did you feel like, oh, wow, now this has to be, you know, huge? Yeah, it was, it, it did. I guess it wasn't really pressure. I couldn't really control much of anything. You do learn as an author that you have to be a partner in terms of promoting the book and being on social media and holding up your kind of end of things there. But I don't know if it was pressure, but it was definitely fear like that people wouldn't read it, I guess. And you kind of hear these horror stories of people who have magical 
auctions and book deals. And then the book doesn't like perform the way that the publisher hoped, regardless of what the performance really was. And so there, yeah, there's, is a bit scary, but it's, uh, done really well. (laughs) Yes. Clearly you have nothing to be scared about anymore. (laughs) Let's take an ad break. So one question I recently got on Instagram was, how do you get paid to travel so much? And though I wish I had an answer to this, the truth is that none of my recent trips have been sponsored at all. My goal this year was to travel as much as possible and paying for those trips myself has meant getting very creative with how I spend and more importantly, save money. That's why I've loved using Truebill, a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. On average, people save up to $720 per year with Truebill. Because companies make it hard to cancel subscriptions, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. You simply link your accounts and Truebill will help you cancel unwanted subscriptions in one tap. And they have a really cool concierge offering. So if getting on the phone and dealing with customer service is what's stopping you, they can do it instead. After every trip I've booked this year, one of the very first things I've done is to immediately assess how I can spend less in day-to-day life in order to be able to afford that trip. After booking one trip, I decided to give up food delivery apps for the year. After another, I decided to stop shopping completely for the entire month, but it wasn't until I started using Truebill that I was able to identify recurring subscriptions that I didn't use or need. For example, there was one streaming subscription that I realized both Jake and I had been paying for, which is obviously not a very financially savvy move when we live in the same house and use all the same streaming apps. They may seem small, but these are the changes that really add up to saving serious money over time. Truebill has over 2 million users and has helped them save over $100 million. Like one of their customers, Matthew, says, in a matter of seconds, I saved $660 for the year on my direct TV bill, saved $120 for the year on my Sirium XM bill, and saved $840 a year on car insurance. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash BOP. Go right now, Truebill.com slash BOP. It could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com slash BOP. So, Amanda, you've acquired Carly's book. Now what? So let's see. That was early March 2021. um, And we were deciding that we wanted to put it in the spring of this year. We wanted it to be in May. We wanted it to be before the start of summer so that by the time people got to Memorial Day weekend here in the U.S., they would be taking this book with them. And so I was actually just a week away from the presentations to sales for those books. And pretty much the rest of my books that I'd be presenting that list were already done and edited and I had written the presentations. And so it was kind of hitting the ground running to kind of present this exciting new project to sales for the first time. And so it was getting all of that kind of slotted in on the very boring back end of like getting the book in the system, getting the contract rolling, getting all of all of the paperwork done. And then it was kind of that immediate jumping in and presenting to the colleagues who hadn't already on my immediate team read kind of talking to sales about it and saying, this is the summer read that you are waiting for for next year. You need to read it now. This is amazing. The book was, we did editing on it, but our first draft was in such good shape that I actually put up, which I won't often do, I often hold it back. But I did share that one immediately with sales because I knew that they would, from reading it, they'd be excited about it in that state. And so Carly and I then started working on the edits 
while that was kind of getting off and running on the other side of things. So from what I understand, when an editor acquires a book and you first start working with the author, there's something called an edit letter, right? It's like the first round of edits. Carly, how did you feel when you got that that first edit letter and where did you go from there, I guess? The edit letter was not, nothing was a surprise. The stuff in it was all things that Amanda and I had already spoken about. It was a lot of character work, making sure like Percy wasn't a complete sad sack. (laughs) I went back and read it this morning (laughs) and kind of strengthening the bond between the two characters and giving Percy a bit more, I guess, like a sense of herself outside of this relationship. So nothing was really a surprise. It was all kind of at the scene level. What was amazing, Amanda and Deborah kind of partnered together on this edit. And because I was giving birth a few weeks later, they like hustled to get me this edit so we could get the book into copy editing before I gave birth. And so we turned it around in like a few weeks, I think. And so I was feeling like really good. Like it was so exciting. I was feeling very, very good about it. I will also say that, and maybe this is, I don't know, Amanda, maybe you could speak to this. Maybe if debut novels are often in de- like great shape because they've gone through like Um, They've been like perfected so much in order to go out on submission because like certainly the second book that I'm working on has been like a big old mess and needs so much, but like the editing process is a lot more time intensive and there's a lot like we're talking about things structurally a bigger picture and then also on the scene level. So it was a pretty fast process and like I would say painless. Oh, that's great. Everything it seems like has been so like boom, boom, boom. How have you had time to like just sit back and like take a breath? No, then she had to have a baby. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm again, this it's incredible. You're crushing it clearly. I don't know how one would like quantify this. I don't think there is a way. How much did your book change from the initial draft that you you queried with to like the published book that we're all reading? Not a ton, I would say. There are some things that are a teeny bit different, but not hugely. Yeah. That's incredible. And I am like green eyed with jealousy right now <laughs> as I as I think about like where my first draft was. And I'm like, oh, there's so much to do versus this is fin- I mean, this is phenomenal. I it's not, it, I don't know what it is with every summer after it was like, I don't know, there's something something was in the water when I was writing it. Honestly, like, I don't know, just kind of poured out of me. And like, definitely there were changes. And especially um, Taylor's editing notes were I think her initial editing note was quite lengthy um, and really digging into character. And I made like pretty like the most substantive changes, I would think, at that point. But it wasn't anything wild and it didn't take too much time. Well, there's something about reading the book that feels pretty magic, too. Like, I think there's just like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, this was, there is something magical about it. I've heard it described that way many times. Well, I think, too, the mixture of, it's, you know, this very descriptive, atmospheric, like, you want to be within the pages. So it's beautiful kind of on that, that sentence and scene level, but you're also tearing through it to find out what happened. And you've kind of perfectly paced those reveals and those questions and those answers and, and those high points where your like heart is being clenched in your hands. And I feel like that just felt like it flowed really naturally on the page. And so then something like that is really exciting to receive because then suddenly you're able to 
crack into the characters and dig in and really play around and, and push it that extra, that extra amount. And Amanda, I know there's no typical, but like, how many rounds do you usually work on and edit with an author? Like, I remember we were talking to Ellen Hildebrand and she was saying that I think she did like six rounds on Silver Girl with her editor. Like she was like, it was endless. Yeah. I mean, I think every book is a different, is a different thing. I feel like most books usually have at least two rounds to go through and those rounds may be very different. It could be, there's one very big round and one that's kind of focusing in. I, I'd say more likely there's probably three or four in most, in most cases, but it really just depends on the project and, and what the needs of that book are. And I feel a responsibility of the editor to make sure I am asking all of those questions or at least presenting them to the authors. They have the opportunity to, to polish everything or to make it exactly the way they want to present kind of that, that biggest version. I'm very averse to the idea of just kind of rushing something through because I want to get it through into production. So, so I do kind of give that, I think caveat when I'm talking to an author for a first time that I'm going to go with you as many rounds as we think together that this book needs to get there. Um, and so it's exciting to work with authors and usually authors are very excited to do that as well, but it is also gauging and knowing at what moment do you, do you push something a little bit further? Um, or is this kind of the, the fullest version of this particular element of the book? Because you don't want to knead the dough too many times either. Mm. Um, and I feel like that's something you figure out within an editorial relationship um, and over time too, which is always such a fun part of the process. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the process was pretty seamless with you and Carly, but what happens if the author is like, I no, <laughs> I don't agree with that change. Like, I'm really, I want to keep this. Know when to push or do you usually let them have that autonomy? How does that work? Oh yeah. No, the book has the author's name on it and it's their baby. So I always kind of give this caveat at the start of my letters. And honestly, it's something that I've probably learned from one of the editors that I sort of apprenticed under on my way up, which is that you know, everything here, these are thoughts, ideas, suggestions to spur more conversation and thought. They're never kind of edicts or, or commands for you to follow because this is your book and I want to help you bring out the fullest version of your vision. I'm not going to dig in on something. I'm going to try to hear what they're most excited about doing with something and then maybe help guide it or ask questions for them to solve. But again, it's their baby. So I would never want to kind of be standing in the way of that. I have to say that this has been one of the kind of biggest surprises about writing a book is how much say the author has, which sounds silly, but having spent my career in journalism and particularly at magazines and newspapers where magazines, especially where the writer is subject to the whims of the editors, like almost entirely and has very little power. Articles will be rewritten. Articles will have titles on it that the writer hates or like have cover lines that the writer hates. And it's like, well, you're working for us. Like, yeah, your name's on it, but this is our publication. And a book is very, very different. I also have a journalism background and I've written in digital media for a long time, but the amount of times I've gotten messages from people saying like, why would you ever make that the headline of a story? And I was like, I don't have any control over this at all. So that's, that's encouraging though about writing a book. Tell us about what happens after you finish the edit. So then it goes to copy editing, I think you said. What happens then? So it heads into copy editing. Meanwhile, at that point, 
we're getting ready to talk to Art about what the cover is going to look like and the cover design. And so it's consulting with the author and agent and looking at the covers that we see in the market already that we love, or even just mood boards of images. I think we had kind of, Carly, you were pulling in all sorts of different palettes. I mean, it can be anything. It could be a magazine image. It could be anything that an author kind of brings to the table. And I feel like, Carly, your background, you're so visual. Like you came in kind of having a good sense of the aesthetic that you wanted. Yeah, I had different ideas for, I put together like a little PowerPoint (laughs) with three or four kind of like very basic, because I do not have any design skills, but very basic like ideas. And um, one of the slides had, I think it was photos of of the lake where I spend time in the summer at sunset. And there were a couple of group of seven paintings, which are kind of like Canadian, a group of very famous Canadian painters. They did a lot of paintings of lakes and trees. And there were a couple of their paintings, oil paintings. And Amanda really liked the idea of an oil painting. And I think, Amanda, maybe you can speak to this in particular felt like we should not be having a kind of like cartoony cover that you would see typically on a rom-com, which I really like those covers. But I think you very wisely felt like that was kind of promising something that the book wasn't. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love those packages too. And it felt like this, I think when I was talking about this book, because I was actually presenting to sales at the same time, Emily Henry's book lovers. And what I was sort of pitching to my team and house from the beginning was that this is going to be the same readers. These are not the same books, and they both will pull on your heartstrings. They both might make you cry, but they're different. One's kind of very wistful and nostalgic and the other, you know, kind of has more of the humor. And I wanted that to be reflected in the packaging. So I think we were looking for sort of those, those evocative images and that feeling of like, I just want to be inside this book. And that's kind of what we presented to the art team. And then they kind of came back with the series and actually it's from a Canadian, Canadian artist, right, Carly? Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Lenny is her name. She's a Toronto based painter. And so it's really, I love that the painting is actually a scene from Ontario on the cover. Oh, that's so special. I love that detail. Yeah. That's amazing. It's like a little Easter egg. It is. (laughs) What happens if an author has an idea for a major change at this point? Can you open the book back up or like, it's like, no, we're, we're done now. By that point, you really want to be as close to done as possible, there will be circumstances where changes just need to happen and it makes sense. And this is kind of a different sort of example, but I was working on a historical novel many years ago and we were actually to the next step after this, which is page proofs, which is after the copy edits have kind of all been resolved and the author's gone through and reviewed and, you know, all the changes have been input it gets typeset. It gets kind of the sample design pages have been done. You've decided, picked the interior design and you do the first pass pages and those get reviewed by the authors and by a proofreader again at that point. And I think it was at that stage when there was a discovery of a trove of letters that was found about the subject of this particular book. And the authors was co-authors, they came to me and they were like, we just learned all of this stuff. Like, <laughs> we need to get back into the book. And that was the time where I was like, yes, absolutely. Like we need this for this book. Like this is texture, this is extra understanding. And so was able to talk to the production department at that time and and work that in. And so they rewrote some elements in their first pass. Normally rewriting in first pass is like a giant no-no. But in some cases, you know, that may happen. 
So there are exceptions, but rarely. Rarely. Let's take an ad break. The other day, Jake was cleaning out his closet and he had finally decided to get rid of this button down he's had for basically the entirety of our relationship for almost the last 10 years. It was torn and there were some buttons missing, I think. He immediately walked over to the trash can and went to throw it out. But luckily, I stopped him before it finally made it in the trash and I said, wait, wait, I can recycle that. He was very confused at first, but then I explained to him the amazing service, which is retold recycling, aka one of my favorite new additions to my monthly closet cleanout routine. Retold is a convenient mail-based service for recycling old and unwanted textiles without having to drag them to a donation center or sort them based on reusability or worry about further contributing to the landfill problem. I love Retold because it solves the problem of what to do with all that miscellaneous stuff that you unearth when cleaning out your drawers or your closet, like that sweat-stained holy t-shirt that you're certainly not going to resell and even a donation center would judge you for. And living in New York City, I love that I can pop it right in the mail instead of needing to schlep my stuff somewhere since I don't have a car. It makes it so simple that I actually do it instead of holding on to all that stuff and letting it take up space because I don't know what else to do with it. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably sitting there and being like, wait, what? How does that actually work? How is that any different than just donating clothes? And I get it. So here's the deal. You get a bag from Retold, fill it with any textiles that you aren't wearing, aren't using, no matter what condition they're in. Once the bag is full, you drop the pre-labeled package into the mail, and once Retold receives the bag, their team sorts out the clothes based on their condition. Clothes in better condition are diverted to thrift stores, giving them a second life. The coolest part, in my opinion, though, is that unusable clothes and textile scraps are either given to upcyclers or are made into a pulp, which is used for things such as insulation for houses or the inside of car seats. If you're interested in cleaning out your closet and getting rid of your unworn clothes in a way that actually feels sustainable, you're in luck because we have a code. Go to retoldrecycling.com and get 10% off with the code BOP10 on all retold bags to make recycling a part of your summer cleanup. That's R-E-T-O-L-D recycling.com with code BOP10. Is there anything you can share about book number two? We haven't shared very much about book number two. I will say that it is a love story. We can say that it's coming out next year. Can we say that, Amanda? We can. We can say that. So much to look forward to. (laughs) I'm curious with a two book deal, and tell me if you can't say this, is it inherently two connected books or it could be two completely different books? Completely different. So is this in the same... Is this in the same world or this is like completely different? Completely different. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. I I think people kind of assume when that it would be a second book, but I think, Amanda, maybe you can speak to this. I'll speak for you and then you can correct me. (laughs) (laughs) But I think like if your first book is a bust and then you've already written the second book that is a sequel to this like bust mm. of a book. Like to me, that seems like bad business. I don't know if that is the thinking. And it wasn't pitched as a, was not pitched as a series. It, it was pitched as a standalone. And so I'm thinking like, that is probably one of the reasons why you may not want to have a like second book in the same world. I think like just speaking for kind of my personal take on it. And I think probably something I had said to Carly at the time was there's certainly characters 
and every summer after that it, we, I think had talked about early on, like that could be a really cool person for a story. I'd love to know about that. But I don't think any of the ideas, Carly, you have been talking at the time were really linked to that. And so I think you and I had sort of said, well, you know, it's an option for down the line. Cause yeah, you know, from the beginning we were talking about and whenever I'm working with an author or acquiring a deal, I'm thinking about the books I just bought, but I'm also thinking about the books that we haven't bought yet and who this person is, is going to be in five years and thinking about it that way. So I feel like there's lots that we could play with down the line. At this pace, I mean, Carly will be writing books <laughs> forever. <laughs> it's going to be great. Cross. That's, <laughs> that's the dream. Can you both give us like a quick overview? How does the author-editor process change from the first book to subsequent books? <laughs> um, well, I spent a lot more time wanting to puke with... <laughs> puke physically well no you were pregnant during the first book just no I like when I when I got um when I got Amanda Amanda's first edit no back on the second book I like thought I was gonna puke for two days um (laughs) sorry no no don't be sorry you're so like the how does it change well one you know each other a little bit better then also I like on my end of things like I had this like I was really worried about letting Amanda down with the second book because I knew how how much she loved every summer after. And that's just my feeling in general now that every summer after has been so well received. It's like, well, nobody's going to like the second book as much. And I just like, there's a lot of pressure that you put on yourself, I think, with a second book in this situation. Yeah, so we knew each other better. And then I think this book has just required a lot more from both Amanda and I in a lot of ways. And I like wrote it in a very different situation too. I decided to leave my job at the end of last year. So I've been writing kind of full-time that has not made this book any simpler to pull off. That's for sure. I think the other thing is, Amanda, maybe you can talk to this, is like you're kind of thinking about the kind of long-term author brand and like how to follow up every summer after and how this book's similar and different from the first book. And there's like a whole bunch of other considerations that I probably don't even know very much about. I think too, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Carly, it seems like having worked with, I've worked with a lot of debut authors over the years. And often that first book is, and especially in this case, Carly, it was written for you. You wrote it because you needed to write it and you wanted to write it. And there was no kind of outside expectation except for your own kind of goal to get it done. And so that's one set of circumstances. And then the next time around, you have a contract, you have people waiting. I mean, the major reason why Taylor and I have been so insistent about getting the draft done well before every summer after is because we knew like as soon as people fell in love, you'd have those extra voices kind of of expectation in your head. And so it's a whole different premise and it is coming up with kind of a whole new idea. And it's not an idea from square one. You're also dealing with the book that you've already written and not wanting to have, you know, a character do the same sorts of things, or you want to maybe explore new themes in this book. And so it, there's a lot more that goes into it. I think the biggest difference is going from kind of the first book to the second book is that naturally the editor is more involved in the second book because often you're conceiving of the idea together and coming up with what that next book is going to be, 
kind of together. But the exciting part is that you're starting to build trust. And I think a good editorial relationship is just so built on trust and trust in the other's ideas, the trust in the fact that someone's going to listen to you uh, or, or that you'll be heard or back and forth. And it is really scary. I was actually really nervous. I get really nervous sending edit letters, to be honest. I could tell you were nervous. I get so nervous. And I know Carly is a lot like me where, like, tell me if I'm wrong, but it's like, I'm going to get that A. I am going yes. to get that A. No, an A is not good enough. I am going to get that A+. Plus. <laughs> and I was really worried about, because I knew every summer after had been so seamless for her, which is not a normal circumstance. And I was worried that I'd sent her these notes which were pretty heavy structural, which again was not to be unexpected, but I was really scared she would get it and be like, Oh God, I've gotten not an A plus. And I really, really, really wanted to like couch that. That's exactly how I was. Yeah. (laughs) And I knew because like, I I can see like that is also how I am. So I, I knew that and wanted to kind of I don't know, couch that as much as possible and not scare her away. Um, but also make sure, because you also don't want an author to not feel confident in what they've done. Because that's the thing, like Carly's voice is so amazing. Her characters are phenomenal. Her pacing is fantastic. And so it's seeing all of these things and figuring out how do we bring out the best version? It's not that the first version wasn't good. It's just, you can see the promise of so much more. And I feel like that's the message I wanted to hit again and again and again in that edit letter. Like after a couple of days, I was like, yeah, no, I knew she was right. That was the thing that was so, it's like walking around having something in your teeth, but not knowing. But as soon as somebody like points it out to you, you're like, what am I going to do? Leave it in my teeth. (laughs) I feel like if there's one universal feeling of writing and sharing your writing, it's just like complete and utter terrors. (laughs) So I'm, I'm glad to know that doesn't change whether you had success. Actually, probably success increases the fear a little bit. <laughs> but I guess that's where that trust comes in between the two of you, like you were saying. Let's take an ad break. So today we want to tell you about another podcast that you might love. Are you always sending your friends texts about the latest celebrity drama Are you the one in your group chat with all the latest TV and movie recommendations? Then this podcast is probably for you. Betches Media presents the At Betches podcast hosted by Betches founder Aileen Drexler, Jordana Abraham, and Sammy Sage, where they welcome you to their group chat. Aileen, Sammy, and Jordana are laughing and gossiping their way through the latest celeb drama, TV recs, and lifestyle trends. For example, in last week's episode, they're breaking down Khloe Kardashian's baby news, talking through Jen Shaw's guilty verdict, and did you hear that Arby Hammer is selling timeshares in the Cayman Islands? One of the things that people say they like most about Bad on Paper is that it feels like you're having a glass of wine with your best friends, and this is the exact same vibe, but with a pop culture twist. So if you're complaining that none of your friends care about these things like you do, it's time to get some internet friends. Come for the hot takes, stay for the group chat vibe. Listen to At Betches now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, that's At Betches from Betches Media. Okay, so to close this out, I would love to know if either of you have a recent or upcoming book that you're excited about and would love to share with listeners. Yeah. Can I share two? Sure. Sure. Okay, so the first one is one that I just read, which is um, Beth O'Leary's The No Show. 
And um, I am a big Beth O'Leary fan and, and I've read her three previous books. And The No Show is about, I don't think I would call it a rom-com, but it is like a, a love story, I would say. And it is about, the premise is about three women who get ghosted by the same man on Valentine's Day. Walking into that book, knowing that it is a love story, I was very intrigued to know how Beth kind of walked that line and made it work. And I also think she's like probably like genius IQ level person. And once I figured out what was happening in the book, I had to put it down and step away for a few days because it is like, it's so powerful. Anyway, it's, it's a really interesting book, I think. And it's fun to see authors do inventive things, I think, in the romance space. And the other book is a book that you will have talked about, which is Aman Hariri, He is 100 Other Girls, which is on my, like, next on my to-read list. I'm so excited to read it because it's set in the media world and it, like, goes over the print digital wars, which is, like, such a life that I have lived. I'm, like, <laughs> bonkers excited about that book. Oh, you will be so into it. The like the inside baseball of it was I've never worked in journalism, but the inside baseball was so interesting. Oh yeah. It was like it's like my my dream book. Amanda, what do you have for us? Okay, I've been weighing this because I'm currently working a book that'll come out next year and I'm so excited about them, but I can't really talk about that now because no one can go buy it. So I think I'll talk about one that actually has been out for a couple of months that I'm very excited about called Take My Hand by Dolan Perkins Valdez, which is set in 1973, Alabama. And it's about a young black nurse who's working in a family planning clinic. She really wants to create more choices for the women in her community. And on her first day, she's sent down this country road to this small house where there are two young sisters who are just barely even teenagers. And they've been put on birth control and they've never been romantically active, but they're young and black and poor. And, and so it's been decided for them that they need to be on birth control. And she begins to take this family into her heart. And one day the unspeakable happens and all their choices have been taken away. And it's about what happens from that. And um, it's based on a real case that happened in 1973 called Ralph B. Weinberger. It's something that shed light on a practice that was happening around the country. And it's moving and powerful. And I think the thing that is so important about it is that it makes history relevant. And it's just so much, I think, part of the conversations that we're having today. And she's just the most stunning writer. And this is someone who I had been a fan of her work for a decade before I had the opportunity to work with her. And I think everyone should be reading it this summer. So that is the book I wanted to talk about. I'm not usually a historical fiction person, but you might have sold me to pick this up. I, what I should say is there is a contemporary framing of the nurse who is now a doctor who's about to retire and has a grown daughter of her own. And she's telling this story to her daughter. I'll check that out. Put it on my list. Sounds great. All right. Becca, do you have anything else? No, I think the only thing is, can you tell us, Carly, where people can find you on the internet if they want to follow you and if you have a preferred place for, to pick up every summer after? And then Amanda, I don't know if you have public social, but if you do we would love to know where we can follow you. Um, yeah. So I'm at Carly fortune on Instagram and Twitter. I'm most active on Instagram and I I'm Carly with an E Y. And then my website is carlyfortune.com. and you can find my book pretty much everywhere, but we will, I think by the time this episode comes out, we will have signed copies available for the first time in the U S through uh, Houston's blue willow bookshop which we're, I'm like super, super excited about. Oh, amazing. 
And Amanda, are you anywhere? I am not on public social. <laughs> I post well, pictures of books and my babies. And so I keep it a very, very tight circle. I'm putting my kids up. Probably smart. <laughs> totally fair. Thank you for chatting with us. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, so you. Much for having us. It was so fun. Let's get into some end matter. Olivia, tell me what you are obsessed with. Yes, my obsession this week completely warms my heart and soul. I've posted about it a few times on Instagram, but I started listening to the Pod Meets World podcast, which is a Boy Meets World rewatch podcast with three of the stars from the show. Daniel Fischel, who played Topanga, Ryder Strong, who played Sean Hunter, and Will Friedle, who played Eric Matthews. I grew up on Boy Meets World. I loved it. I still love it. And it's just been so not only like comforting because of all of the nostalgia, but just fascinating to hear these people talk about being child stars, but also the way television has changed in the last 20 years, 30 years. Gosh. Um, so yeah, I just love it. It really just brings me so much joy in a time where I just feel like some some happy, pure content is just needed. I've never listened to a rewatch podcast, but you have me pretty close with this one. Did you watch Boy Meets World? Of course I did. It was like a very, like a cornerstone of my teen years. I feel like I was the same age as, as Corey and Sean and Topanga. So uh, no, that's not true. I must have been younger than them because when they were in college, I certainly wasn't in college unless they like sped up the timeline. But yeah, I remember it being very central to my TV watching as a kid. I think you'll enjoy it then. It's uh, it's really made me want to re-download Disney Plus and watch all the episodes as they recap them because it's just, it's just great. It's just great. So I don't know if this is still true, but um, did you know that Ryder Strong has or had a book podcast? Oh, I was going to talk to you about. <laughs> Should we get Ryder Strong on the podcast? No, I, I have, think we like, could. Oh my gosh! So I started listening to it. It's called Literary Disco. It's good. He has the most pleasant way of speaking. He just sounds like such a truly warm, kind person to be around. I I cannot think of what I would want to ask him. I would want to tell him things. Like I would want to just be like, I love Boy Meets World, but I don't know what I would ask him. But um, I feel like we could get him to come on the podcast. I Let's do it. Okay. Okay. Great. The crossover we didn't know we needed, yet I do somehow. Okay. So tell me about your obsessions. Okay, so I have three vacation-related obsessions. So the first one, I mentioned that um, in planning our trip to Paris, we got an itinerary from my friend Megan's business called Paris Perfected. And her business basically is just helping people plan trips to Paris. And there's two offerings. The first is you can just buy a guide with her recommendations in them. And the second is she'll customize an itinerary for you. And so we did the latter. And she put together four days worth of itinerary for us. And I'll tell you, we did not use it to the letter, but it was great because it matched things together that were in similar neighborhoods. And like we kind of used it as building blocks to like piece things together where it was like, okay, if we go to dinner here, here's the bar we should go to after because they're they're near each other. Or, you know, hey, we're going to this museum. Here's what else is around it. The recommendations were all spot on and she'll curate it to you. So, you know, if you have certain things that are important to you or, you know, like we care a ton about food, like if you care a ton about like art or museums, like she'll curate it to your interests. And we just found the quality of the recommendations to be so spot on. 
That's amazing. I was going to ask how you liked that. That sounds great. It was great. Highly recommend. The second one is we went to Dijon, which is in Burgundy. All of the wine we had in Burgundy, which is one of France's wine producing regions, was fantastic. I did not have a bad wine while we were there. And I liked that all the restaurants also only had local wine. I am like obsessed with Burgundy wines. I don't think I've ever really tried it. So you probably have. It's mostly Pinot Noir. Oh, okay. The red is mostly (laughs) Pinot Noir, but it's Pinot Noirs from this region. Got it. And we found that they were like really interesting Pinot Noirs. Really great. And then I think the white is mostly Chardonnay and Chablis. Wasn't too hot for the red wine? No, because it's light red wine. Okay. Okay. Oh my gosh. I'm like definitely going to be on the lookout for some of my, either my local wine store or maybe like ordering online. I didn't bring any home because my suitcase was already too full and too heavy, but I am on a burgundy wine kick. And then my last one. So I've talked about this on the podcast at least once, maybe multiple times. So I use this app called Digit for savings. It basically steals money out of your checking account in small increments so you don't notice it. And it just like saves it over time. And I was pretty upset because it started costing, I think, $5 a month a little while ago. And I was like, oh, I don't know if this is worth it. But it truly is so seamless. Like it just steals money from me and I, I never notice it. And so when I got COVID, I was like, oh, shit. Like it's it's just, it was an unplanned expense. I think it probably ended up being like around two grand for those hotel nights and and the flight changes and, and all of my food. And like, you know, I needed a new train ticket and, you know, not that I can't afford it, but I wasn't budgeting for it. It wasn't something that I expected. And I was like, oh crap. And I realized that I've had digit, it, like I have two funds. I have a vacation fund in there and then I have a rainy day fund. And I realized that it's just been saving behind the scenes for years. And I was just able to like, I just took $2,000 out of it. And I was like, this is amazing. That's, you have sold this to me right now. It's sold. It validated this decision. I've never, I've never looked at my checking account and been like, oh, it's going ham. Like it's stolen too much money from me. It just like (laughs) takes little increments. It like, I think it learns your checking account of like what the trends are. And it just takes out little amounts of money based on how much is in there. So usually it's like, I, you can set a cap too. I think my cap is set at $20 a day. But yeah, it was it was amazing that I just hadn't even thought about saving this money, but then had it there. Okay. You're inspiring me. I'm going to do this. That's I'm so glad you had that. I am too. It really made it a lot less stressful. So let's talk about what we've been reading. Yes. What have you been reading lately? Okay. I have three. So I'm halfway through Vacation Land by Meg Mitchell Moore which is a book that Ashley Spivey recommended to us in our summer reading episode. She equated it to an Ellen Hildebrand, which I do agree with. I'm halfway through because I started it before vacation. And I feel I I have like a weird thing where I don't ever bring a half-read book on vacation because it feels like a waste of space. So I left it here. So I have to finish it now that I'm back. But I'm really enjoying it. The basic premise, I can't remember how many POVs it's from, but it's a multi-POV book. It's about a girl in her 20s who shows up to this vacation town in Maine and has this like fascination with this rich family. Oh, that does sound like your thing. It it was great. (laughs) Then I read The Cloisters by Katie Hayes, and this doesn't come out until November. And it's pitched as a cross between The Secret History by Donna Tartt and Ninth House by Leigh Bardugo. And I think that is a very accurate 
set of comps for this book. So it's about a girl who graduates college with an art history degree, maybe just a history degree, and takes a job at the Met Cloisters in New York, which is an actual place, gets sucked into this search for the world's first tarot deck and kind of like the history of the occult and kind of like Renaissance mystical objects. It's very good. I think Ninth House meets The Secret History is a great comp because it is it is much more literary and it is much more intellectual than Ninth House, which is kind of just like magical secret society at a college. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was really good. I read it in a day. While I had COVID, I like didn't feel like reading. So I think that says a lot that it held my attention. Yeah, it really does. So I really enjoyed that. And then I also read this book called The Work Wife by Allison B. Hart, which comes out next week, I believe. And the entire book takes place over the course of one day. And it's told from three different perspectives. And it's basically about the household staff working for a very rich Hollywood family that I think is like kind of supposed to be Steven Spielberg. And so it's told from the perspectives of the chief of staff of their personal staff, then the perspective of the wife, and then the perspective of this stranger who comes to town who is somehow connected to the family, but we don't know quite how. And so it's a little bit of like Me Too in Hollywood, but then it also has a lot of the minutia of what it what it is like running the household and like just the choreography that it takes to run a household with this many staff. Yeah, I imagine that would be like a whole other universe. It was really interesting. It it wasn't perfect for me. Like I'm not like this is a must read, but if you're fascinated by rich people and what it would be like to work for rich people, I think the author worked for like a very, very rich family in Hollywood. Like there's some there's some good nuggets. I thought it was really fascinating. It was a perspective that I hadn't ever thought about or read about. Cool. The detail about the author makes me even more curious to read it. Yeah. What about you? What have you read? So I haven't been reading as much lately, probably because I haven't been able to focus, but I did read randomly. I read this book called Process, The Writing Lives of Great Authors by Sarah Stadola. Uh, it's It was on Kindle Unlimited. I just sort of downloaded it one night on a whim because I'm really fascinated by writing routines of people. And so it was all about... I think it was maybe like a dozen different authors and what writing looks like to them. Like how many hours do they write a day? Do they write in the morning? Like, does it come really easily to them? Do they do it in one sprint? Like all of those details. Is it like contemporary authors or is it like Ernest Hemingway? It's both. Okay. Um, so it was like there's Margaret Atwood. Uh, Ernest Hemingway was one of them. Toni Morrison. Some other people I can't remember now. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a nice, quick, interesting read. And then I also read The Lies I Tell by Julie Clark, who wrote The Last Flight, which I think came out in 2020. It is a thriller about a con woman and then a reporter who tries to take her down, basically. And they're connected in very interesting ways. If you're looking for like a thriller that's not that's not particularly scary this would be a great one. I get that question a lot. And yeah, I I enjoyed it. Ooh, I've heard nothing but good things about that book and that author, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. So that's what we have for you today. 
We're taking a break next week from our How a Book Gets Made series for book club, and we are reading Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus, which is the book that our Facebook community selected for us this month. And it is about a female chemist in the 1960s. And uh, if you haven't read that book, pick it up and we will talk all about it next week. And in the meantime, if you would like more of us, you can find us on Instagram at Bad on Paper Podcast. You can also join our Facebook group to talk more about anything you heard in this episode or about books or life in general. You can find me on Instagram at Olivia Mentor. And I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. 